You're listening to In Tune, a podcast series featuring equity research analysts from BMO Capital Markets. Our shows explore key emerging themes, trends, and issues which are important to our institutional clients globally. Hello, this is Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets. We have the distinct honor and pleasure to moderate for the fourth consecutive week BMO Financial Group's COVID-19 weekly call with Dr. John White and three subject matter experts from BMO Financial Group. This week's call features Dr. John White's comments along with Senior Biotech Analyst George Farmer, Deputy Chief Economist Michael Gregory, and myself, Brian Belsky, in terms of investment advice. During this podcast, we will review Dr. John White's comments along with our senior analyst, George Farmer's thoughts. Also, a fun back and forth between the two that really talk about real life applications of what both Dr. John White's talking about and George Farmer's talking about. Here are this week's comments. Well, good afternoon, everyone. And over the next few minutes, I'm going to talk about uh, where we are, what we know, and what might be coming. So it's always good to start with um, a global perspective where there's 1.289 million cases and 70,000 deaths. But I also want to talk about what's happening in Canada and what's happening in the United States, North America. So in Canada, there's 15,496 cases as of 7 a.m. this morning, with 280 deaths. It's interesting to note that the highest number of cases, really more than half of cases, are in Quebec, yet um, the majority of deaths are in Ontario. And there's been a recent study in Lancet that pointed out that Whereas before we were thinking that the mortality rate could be between 3 and 4%, it's probably less than 1%. It obviously varies with age. For those less than 20, it's less than 0.03%. And for those in their 80s, it could be as high as 10%. But Canada has been talking about that they feel that the fatality rate is 0.66%. That compares to the flu, 0.1%. So it's still significant, but not as high as was previously thought. And some folks estimate it's even lower because we don't have a true sense of the denominator. Both Canada and the United States have talked about the next two weeks uh, may be uh, a time period where we see um, the highest number of deaths per day. Um, officials in Ontario project that between 3,000 and 15,000 deaths over the next 18 months. That's how they're looking at it, a little different than the United States in terms of how they present the data. And approximately, they point out that 1,500 people die from the flu every year in Canada. So this would be 10 times that amount. And the hotspots in Canada typically are the senior residences in Ontario, Quebec, and British Columbia, which, as you all know, are Canada's three biggest provinces. But if we turn to the United States, there's been more than 1.8 million tests. I'm going to talk a little bit about tests because we've talked about that for the last few weeks. 
And that's really been because there has been a ramp up in the ability to test, both in terms of hospital laboratories, freestanding, the commercial labs, as well as these point-of-care testing. Hearing about um, one that really delivers results in five minutes if it's positive, 15 minutes if it's negative. But those 1.8 million tests, there's been over 337,000 cases with over 9,000 deaths, currently 9,654. But what we need to keep in mind is that over half of those deaths are actually in New York State. The other hot spots are New Jersey, New Orleans, um, and Cook County. But an important point that I, I want to make out is that it was announced yesterday, for the past two days, New York City has seen a decrease in the rate of increase. So are we perhaps starting um, to flatten that curve? Perhaps. Remember, we're always looking at things two weeks ago. We're going to share some data later, but I wanted to talk about some projections that folks are talking about in the United States. Uh, Canada is actually coming out with some modeling very soon. But m most folks believe that we'll reach the peak, the highest number of deaths per day, on April 15th. Um, and that by August, there will be a total of 81,000 potential cases in the United States. And when I send out um, some of these graphs, I want you to keep in mind, because something that folks don't talk about that, that I think is all of you who are very interested in numbers will want to focus on, there's a big shaded area that no one talks about, which is this uncertainty in the data. Because the, the modeling changes every day based on new information, because behavioral change, social distancing, physical distancing, plays a big role here, and that the current models are weighted towards hot spots like New York. So that's going to have an impact on what the numbers show. But I think in terms of most folks do feel that a peak may be in, in two weeks, in, in, on uh, April 15th, which is about um, eight days, what, about eight, nine days from now. And then the issue of where we are in terms of the number of deaths per day. And that's important because once we reach a peak, then we can have some potential changes in our mitigation strategies. So two important things that have occurred over the past week. The CDC announced on Friday a voluntary recommendation, which was to wear facial coverings to prevent asymptomatic spread. Because we believe that 25% of spread is when you don't have any symptoms. But it's facial coverings, not facial masks. And fa facial coverings typically are these cloth products. Um, and what they're saying is to wear these in public settings where other social distancing measures are difficult to maintain, such as in a grocery store or pharmacies. Everyone doesn't follow the rules or in areas where there's significant community-based transmission. And cloth facial coverings made at home are fine, and several websites, websites show how to make them. The Surgeon General has demonstrated one, and I'll share those links as well. But this is not to replace the physical distancing that we're promoting. It's not a substitute 
for hand washing. Now, I will tell you the World Health Organization has not changed its recommendation to wear a mask or, or facial coverings. In Canada, Dr. Theresa Tam, uh, Canada's chief health officer, has said that they're still looking into that. So they haven't made any changes in Canada. Um, so is there the potential to stop the spread with a mask when you're wearing outside, a facial covering? Um, it, it's a possibility and something that you should consider. We talked a lot about testing, diagnostic testing, whether or not someone has coronavirus. But where we're really going to see a lot more discussion is on coronavirus antibodies. And last week, the FDA authorized a new blood test for coronavirus antibodies, which requires a finger prick of blood as opposed to uh, a nasal swab or a throat swab. And what that will tell us is whether a patient has been exposed to the virus and now may have some immunity. And the reason why that's important is people with immunity may be able to return to work sooner. Uh, they serve an important role as to first responders and doctors. And obviously, antibody testing can give us a better sense of how widespread and how uh, what the fatality rate is in the in the population or in your community. And it delivers the test in about 15 minutes. Um, and it's qualitative test. It doesn't tell how well your antibodies are, so um, it's not completely clear, um, you know, how well it will protect you. But having worked at FDA, I wanted to point out an important distinction because the news media sometimes has covered it wrong. It's not an approval. It's actually an authorization. And that differs from approval in two key ways. And the first is the validation bar is much lower. And that's important to keep in mind. So as, as you know, the FDA typically approves products after a lengthy process. That's multiple human trials, hundreds of participants, uh, first to ensure that it does no harm, and then there is safety and efficacy. For diagnostic tests or other tests, that actually have to do what it says it does. But under an emergency use authorization, a company just has to show that the product works well enough in a trial with a few dozen samples, getting the right answer at least 95% of the time. Um, and in this way, the process can be completed in weeks rather than months or years. But the second distinction has to do with duration. And this is important to keep in mind for these tests. An emergency use authorization only applies for as long as the Secretary of Health and Human Services has made a public health emergency declaration, which is what we have. And it's only in the context of that particular emergency. And what's also noteworthy is for these blood tests, the bar is even lower. Normally, you have to make the application. In this, the FDA um, is allowing these to be distributed without even having to actually apply for the emergency use authorization. And I will tell you there are about two dozen companies that, that currently are in this space of antibodies, which I think is where we're going to be going in terms of really trying to do some zero surveillance. I know some of the other people are going to talk about um, where we are in treatments and what might be potential um, opportunities. I wouldn't necessarily call anything a game changer, but I'll defer to uh, some of the other speakers. I want to talk a little bit about tech because I said I want to talk about where we might be going. And what we're seeing is how do we use tech to help, you know, curb the spread of the virus, particularly 
as we think about the use of smartphones and tracking where people have been. And some of you may have listened um, to a call with BMO CEO where we heard a little bit about what China and South Korea have done with smartphone surveillance and how it actually can limit your movement in those countries. I'm not sure if that would be palatable um, in North America, but what is important to keep in mind that Google, as you may or may not have heard, is publicly releasing data it's collecting about people's movements during the coronavirus pandemic. So just as you may be, you know, use Google to know when uh, restaurants and, and gyms and other things have been busy in the past, it's actually planning to publish a series of community mobility reports. And that's going to show the types of places people are visiting across 131 countries and regions. And there was a preliminary report published on Friday. Because what we're trying to do here is that you, if you look at trends of tracking movements over time and by geography, that that can help shape and inform governments and public health officials' response. So they contain data from two to three days earlier, and they intend to show trends in how people are behaving and also responding to social distancing, which really we want to call physical distancing. And it will be broken down by country and then by region. Uh, so we'll see if people are going to retail, pharmacies, work, their parks. Um, so that could be very interesting in terms of this aggregated, anonymized sets of data. But they're not the only player in this, and, and that's why I think this is noteworthy. Facebook is making their tracking data available through, the, with, through academic institutions. They're working with the Harvard School of Public Health. They're working with the London School of Hygiene and, and Tropical Medicine. And what, again, they're trying to do is to study where people move and then how often they encounter others in hopes of better understanding the virus. And then aggregating all the signals into a picture of how people are flowing and the likelihood that people from a town or neighborhood are going to come into contact um, with someone who has had the virus, and they're calling these disease prevention maps. There are other companies that are talking about if you have been infected with coronavirus, you would upload the fact that you were, and then they would identify uh, people that came close to you using location trackers and they could send an alert to those persons um, saying that they need to be tested or they need to self-quarantine for 14 days. And, and that could be very interesting because we really don't have a public, enough public health officials uh, to do contact tracing. The other aspect are what's going to be the role of wearables as an early warning system for COVID-19. What if we start to see upticks in your heart rate uh, or your temperature, or even your blood pressure, would, would that indicate the virus? If you're not in, if you're not being as physically active as you used to be, is that a sign? What about your sleep patterns? Um, so there's really a lot of interesting aspects of tech that can help address the virus. But I think the biggest change that we're going to see over the next few weeks is how do we bring rapid testing to scale, both on the diagnostic side, we haven't got there yet, um, and then certainly on the antibody side. That's going to be a major aspect, this rapid testing brought to scale, because that's going to impact our ability to exit uh, these mitigation strategies. 
So if I think about optimism, as we always like to end, is that there is some preliminary data that mitigation is working in many areas. And maybe we're seeing a true decrease in the number of deaths, that slope in New York. That we're having new testing strategies, both diagnostic and antibodies, which are going to have a big impact on improved surveillance and ultimately returning to some sense of normal. We actually have multiple treatments that we'll hear about that are undergoing real-world evidence trials. And we're having technology and innovation play a much bigger role now, um, and they're going to play a, a much bigger role in the future if we think about is this virus going to return in the fall. So, you know, I'll just end with, you know, the four reminders that we all need to keep in mind. We want to stay at home. We want to social distance, you know, whether it's six feet or two meters. We want to have that vigorous hand washing, 20 to 30 seconds. And we want to clean and disinfect, you know, high-touch surfaces. That's how we're going to stop the spread. And with that, I'll turn it over to Brian. Thanks, Dr. White. Uh, now we're going to hear from George Farmer, one of our lead analysts in the biotech space. He's the senior biotech analyst for BMO Capital Markets. George, go ahead. All right. Thanks, Brian. Um, Dr. White, thank you so much for um, – for that uh, uh, overview of, of the space. Uh, I think um, I hear certainly hear some optimism in your voice, and, and we're also pretty optimistic um, as we think about the therapeutic landscape uh, that's in front of us. Uh, yet this, today I'd like to talk about uh, some of the, uh, the therapies that are, that are in development. Um, when, I, when I talk about this space, I like to think about them falling into essentially three different buckets. Um, the first would be regarded as the antiviral treatments, um, which and as well as other uh, therapeutics to actually treat the disease per se. Uh, the second bucket would be uh, supportive care treatments, and finally the third bucket would be uh, have to do with vaccines. Uh, in the therapeutic landscape, where we've been following pretty closely some of the direct antiviral treatments that are ongoing clinical development and that have been administered on, on a compassionate use basis. Uh, specifically, we're, we're very intrigued with the potential of Gilead's remdesivir, which is undergoing phase three development, um, as well as other clinical trials where it's being uh, evaluated. This is a drug that is designed to directly interfere with viral replication. Um, it itself is effectively a, a, a dummy uh, nucleotide that will terminate viral replication in such a way that the virus can no longer copy itself. And this approach is widely used uh, for other antiviral treatments, notably um, HIV therapies. Um, to that end, uh, a Kalitra, an anti-HIV drug that uh, is approved for treat, uh, 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 by uh, AbbVie, has also been evaluated and is continuing evaluation in uh, COVID patients. Um, there was a phase three trial that unfortunately did not turn out so well, but that may be because the patients were very advanced. Nevertheless, evaluation continues. Um, we expect we'll see some data coming from the remdesivir and Kalitra clinical trials probably around the April-May timeframe. Um, there's been a lot of talk about the use of hydroxychloroquine, uh, both in combination and uh, on its own, in combination with azithromycin and, and on its own. Um, the, the data that has come out has been admittedly spotty. Uh, there have been four published clinical trials, none of which appear
appear to be quite robust in our view, uh, but do show some signals of activity. Um, I want to caution that this is really just preliminary data. Um, it's very important not to prescribe the wrong drug for the wrong patient because that can be fatal, especially with a drug um, like hydroxychloroquine, which has been proven to be quite safe overall, but we just don't know how this drug is ultimately going to behave in COVID-19 patients. Um, we need um, perspective prospectively designed randomized controlled studies in order to get that answer, and those are underway. Um, and, uh, and certainly we've heard some anecdotal evidence this drug might be working, and it certainly seems promising, but again, we have to be cautious. Um, there has been some interesting data coming out of studies that uh, has involved the transfer of plasma from patients who were severely infected, who recovered, and then given back to other severe patients. So this is basically tra transferring, if you will, the immune system from one patient to the next. Um, there have been uh, two studies that uh, caught our eye in particular. Uh, seven out of ten patients that were treated this way had undetectable virus at day six. Uh, in another such study, five out of five patients showed a symptom improvement with three out of five of them coming off of ventilators by day 10. And then there have been, uh, there was one study where this plasma was actually purified to a higher degree to get down to IVIG, which is a, a therapeutic that is uh, also uh, <clears throat> approved for other indications. But in this case, the IVIG was coming from infected patients. And there, in three patients, there was some encouraging activity. On the supportive care front, we've been looking at uh, two anti-inflammatory drugs that are FDA-approved. Uh, one is Actemera from Roche, one the other is Kevzara from, from Regeneron Sanofi. Um, these are targeting the uh, interleukin-6 receptor. Interleukin-6 is a cytokine that is overactivated in end stages of <clears throat> COVID-19 infection and has been shown to be a master regulator of the inflammatory response. Um, th there is some early data that suggests that dro those drugs could work. On the vaccine front, um, we're, we're very intrigued with uh, work that's going on by a number of different parties out there. Um, specifically, we've been following the uh, RNA vaccine in development by Moderna. Um, this is a, uh, a, a drug which really consists of genetic material that, when injected, uh, is, exploits the, the patient as its own factory to make the antigenic protein to be excreted. Um, Moderna has shown that this particular approach works for the treatment, for the development of other vaccines, including cytomegalovirus in early trials, um, and they have also shown that it works preclinically for treating a related coronavirus or developing a vaccine for a related coronavirus called MERS, which was a uh, part of an epidemic about uh, uh, eight years ago. Um, the um, this trial is underway, uh, as far as we understand, uh, uh, by the National Institute of Health, um, and we're expecting we'll see some preliminary results from this study from human volunteers in June. Uh, specifically, we will be looking for whether any neutralizing antibodies uh, are arising in these patients, and certainly we'll be looking for safety. Uh, Moderna has indicated that this drug could be available on a compassionate use basis for healthcare workers in the fall, pending results and then potentially could be available to the general public. We're estimating uh, probably by, uh, conservatively, by summer of next year. Uh, another vaccine that we're uh, hoping to be paid uh, close attention to once it gets into the clinic is out of Johnson & Johnson. 
Uh, they have announced that they'll be starting a clinical trial in September uh, with government agencies, and again, that drug could be available uh, on a compassionate use basis potentially for uh, investigators. I want to caution that vaccines, um, there, there's no guarantee that these things are going to work. I mean, they have worked uh, for preventing measles and polio and chickenpox, um, but, um, you know, with, with other viral diseases such as the flu, we've, we rarely see uh, 100% degrees of protection, actually oftentimes maybe only 30 or 40% protection depending upon the season. Um, and to our knowledge, there have been no vaccines developed uh, in, in humans for, uh, for coronavirus infections. So this all needs to be figured out, uh, certainly how to dose these drugs, whether a booster is going to be required, whether adjuvants are going to be required. That all remains to be seen. So that's our overview of the therapeutic and uh, vaccine space. And with that, I'll, I'll turn it back over to Brian. Thanks, George. This week we have a very unique opportunity to have a doctor on the front lines and also someone that worked at the FDA, like Dr. White, to listen and interact with one of our subject matter specialists, George Farmer, who has been an analyst in the biotech and drug space for multiple years to kind of interact. So I thought we would switch things up here a little bit and have Dr. White either interject on what he heard from George, George or actually have Dr. White have an opportunity to ask George a direct question. And so with that, Dr. White, I'll hand it back to you. Sure. Um, I think that was a uh, very measured uh, approach to where we are. Just having um, been at FDA, really see a wide spectrum. And I think, you know, what I've been talking about before, I think more of the excitement is around potential treatments right now than perhaps where we are on vaccines recognizing in the vaccine space for viruses, it's been particularly challenging. Luckily, there's more than one trial underway, as you've talked about. So there, there's a, always the risk that you have to act pretty early based on preliminary data in terms of manufacturing vaccine. That's why we have the challenges with influenza. We don't always get, um, you know, the, the best vaccine every year. So I think that's an important point. And, and I think, you know, what we've always talked about when I was at FDA is the right drug for the right person and the right dose. Um, so I was glad to hear about recognizing that there's still a lot of side effects. But if I asked, posed a question, I'd say, you know, where there's a lot of potential opportunities in this issue of convalescent plasma, but we forget that that's not like taking a pill you know, or a simple infusion. There's mm -hmm. some resource intensity to that, and there are potential side effects in terms of allergic reactions, anaphylaxis, um, other broad issues of fatigue and temperature and things like that. How would you judge, you know, or, or rate convalescent plasma to some of these other treatment strategies? Um, well, the convalescent plasma approach certainly seems viable given that theoretically the donor plasma should have antibodies uh, floating around in that plasma, and if the patient recovered from his or her disease, then one could suspect that those antibodies may have been playing a role by playing a neutralizing function. So um, uh, just by transferring those antibodies to a sick patient, perhaps you can 
you can provide that benefit to the sick patient who may not be in the position to mount the kind of antibody response that would be required to cure, to, to cure the disease. But I think, I mean, it, it sounds great, um, sort of on paper, and it's, you know, we have these, these bits of evidence that this could work. Um, Dr. White, I mean, you probably may know better than I would, but I don't know of any other uh, treatment where this is, it, this is used in other disease settings. Um, it, it, it does appear to make a lot of sense, but like, like you said, there are a lot of other confounding factors. Um, do, you, do you have any view as to whether these approaches have been successful uh, with other diseases? It's been challenging. I think it's more, you know, theoretical. Um, and there is a trial currently underway at Mount Sinai. I think there's just also the challenges in terms of where is the funding for something like that. But but I think, you know, in terms of as we discuss the full armamentarium, it's important to go over, you know, what they all are. And, and what I also want to point out that you point out is, you know, we're in a epidemic, but we still have to have that objectivity of peer review, of data analysis, you know, we have to to find that balance. But you're right, I think in convalescent plasma, it's still a little more theoretical. We have to think more in terms of what other infectious diseases will we seem that to be a benefit. And really what we're talking about it here is for those patients that really are in a critical state, not early on in yes. the disease process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think um, perhaps the, the direct antivirals look to be most promising to me, um, just given the decades of research that has gone into this approach for treating uh, other viral infections. Um, you know, the challenge has really been, I think, uh, side effects and uh, uh, recognizing that, that the viral enzyme machinery is, is very different from the, from the human machinery. But uh, uh, certainly the in vitro preclinical data suggests that this approach should work. And there are lots of other uh, uh, anti direct antiviral treatments out there that are FDA approved to choose from. So if, if this approach doesn't work, perhaps there are others. Here are the five takeaways from Dr. John White's comments this week. In the U.S., more than 1.8 million tests have been administered with 337,000 positive cases and over 9,000 deaths. Over half the deaths are concentrated in New York State alone. Current predictions are that in the U.S. and Canada, the number of deaths per week will peak on or around April 15th. Prediction models are based on hotspots such as New York, but changing daily, factoring people's behavior and social distancing. As such, it is difficult to accurately predict where and when in terms of we'll see the numbers growing a month from now, for instance. Point number two, last Friday, the CDC announced voluntary recommendations for facial covering in public settings where other distancing measures are difficult, such as supermarkets and pharmacies. These are different from facial masks and can be simple cloth products made at home and does not affect social distancing measures that are currently in place. Point number three, also last week, the FDA authorized finger prick blood tests for coronavirus antibody checking, which are for people who were exposed and healed and thus have immunity 
Important to note that this is an authorization and not an approval. The key differences being, number one, the validation bar is much lower for authorizations than for an approval. And number two, the duration can only be as long as the public health secretary has declared an emergency. Point number four from Dr. White's comments. Technology is coming to the forefront to curb the spread. Smartphone tracking and contact tracing has proved to work in countries like South Korea and China. Google, for one, is looking to publish a series of community reports in over 100 countries to identify people's behavior and see where they are gathering in response to social distancing, which can in turn help shape government responses. Fifth point and final point with respect to John White's overview. The biggest changes over the next few weeks will be how we bring rapid testing to scale, which will impact our ability to exit on the mitigation strategies. Dr. White is cautiously optimistic as preliminary data shows that social distancing is working, multiple treatments are being developed, and technology and innovation are playing bigger roles. With respect to our own analyst George Farmer's comments during the conference call, currently the therapies in development can be divided into three buckets, antibody treatments, supportive care, and vaccines. First off, antibody treatments potentially include Gilead's Remdesivir, an antiviral drug that will directly interfere with viral replication, meaning injecting a dummy nucleotide that will terminate the virus's ability to replicate in the anti-malaria drug chloroquine. Second major bucket, supportive care, includes two anti-inflammatory drugs that are targeting treatments for the end stages of COVID-19. Third and final point in terms of Mr. Farmer's comments, with respect to vaccines, U.S. drug developer Moderna is developing a vaccine that uses a synthetic messenger RNA to help the body immunize against the virus. Should current trials go well, this vaccine could be available for health workers in the fall and next summer for general use. Thank you so much for joining us. Hope to speak with you soon. Be safe and be well. Thanks for listening to Intune, presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Intune on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast providers. Or visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com to listen to more podcasts. Until next time, thank you for tuning in. To access our full disclosures, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure.